The Gist is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, February 20th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Tales of transport. I know they're not the best, but today I met a true New Yorker. Let's call him Frank. Frank the taxi driver, not his real name. And I also disguised the voice a little bit. Here he is. The taxi is a bus. We do the best we can for everyone involved. He said, you know, use my name. I don't care. I'm in a fight with the TLC. Listen, let me tell you about what Frank was doing. Frank is the kind of guy, the old time New York taxi guy who you get in and he says, where to Mac? But today on the coldest day of the year, he was saying something other than where to Mac. He was seeing people freeze from corner to corner and he just couldn't take it. So he would ask us who are in the cab and I say us, he would ask us, do you mind if I stop for them? And he would stop for people and let them get in the cab. So pedestrians wouldn't suffer. He picks up one passenger, sees another one suffering in minus 15 degree chilly weather, picks them up. Hey, where you going? We got to make some stops if we work together. Uh, how about 58 and Lex? Will that work for you? Yeah. All right. Beautiful. That way we can take care of this gentleman. He's going to Columbus Circle. Sold. And then he'd say, yeah, yeah, we're going to stop first for this lady and then for that guy. So here is how the act of kindness and taxi and limousine commission thumb nosing played out. Some of the people liked it. Most of the people were just confused. Wait a minute. I just want to go to 65th and 3rd. Why are these people already in the cab? This is not how it works in New York City. But he just kept stopping getting people. He was like a St. Bernard for people who had fallen on the Alps. So I got to know him and many other New Yorkers on my 45-minute ride that should have taken 12 minutes. But I salute you, sir, your spirit, your verve, and your volume. On the show today, I will spiel about another New Yorker, or should I say a spiritually erstwhile New Yorker, and Maria Konnikova on the snuggle cure. But first, the Nasdaq closed today at 49.55. Oh, that is so close to a big round number. Bye! Bye! Normally on this show, I treat the day-to-day moves of the stock market as background noise, either an emphatic baseline by John Paul Jones, or even an undifferentiated strum, which nevertheless shapes the environment. But the NASDAQ is about to hit 5,000. In the year 2000, pre-tech bubble, it was at 51.32 once in the middle of a trading day. But 5,000, I mean, that's a number. Dominic Chu covers the markets for CNBC. He hears from investors and CEOs and probably a dozen people a day claiming to have invented Uber for dog sitting or Uber for archery or Uber for something. Hello, Dominic. (laughs) So the reason we're focusing on the NASDAQ is that it is sort of the shorthand, fairly or unfairly, for tech stocks. Is that still as true today as it was 12, 13, 15 years ago? You know, to a certain extent, it is. I mean, the NASDAQ composite and the NASDAQ 100 indices have always been indicators of technology-driven markets. And the reason why is because a lot of these, these companies, technology-wise, biotechnology-wise, tend to list on the NASDAQ and, and, and have, at least you know, from a, from a generalist point of view, over the last decade or two. The reason why it's interesting now to pay attention to it is because a lot of people say, hey, you know, we're back at NASDAQ 5000. That means we're getting back to the internet bubble, the irrational exuberance, the, 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 the overhype that we saw back in 1999 and 2000. And for a lot of people, 
that may be true, but for a lot of people who still watch the markets, today is a very different market than it was back in 2000. And tech companies themselves are a lot different. I mean, these days they're more legit. The earnings are there. Back in 2000, there were some companies that actually could point to actual earnings, but it seemed to be much more about the promise of earnings for most of the companies. Absolutely. So, so you, hit, you hit the nail on the head. Here's an example, right? Yahoo is a name that we still are familiar with today. It now does internet content. It's a portal, right? Back in the day, it was a $94 billion company, right? And it traded with a valuation that was very, very, very aggressive, meaning you had to pay $1,781 for every dollar worth of earnings that the company generates. Mm -hmm. That is a lot of growth expectation built in. You gotta grow this company like mad just just to get it to that valuation. Today, Yahoo's a very different company, more mature, but it now you only have to pay about $6 in stock price for every dollar's worth of profits that Yahoo generates. And it's only worth about $42 billion now. So people say, yeah, then and now it's a lot different. Although I will point this out. It's not to say that there aren't companies today that still have excessive valuations. Like, or trade at, like at Uber. Levels. I'll throw that one out there. So here's the thing. Uber is private, right? Yeah. You talk about the Pinterest of the world. You talk about the Snapchats. A lot of people say that the bubble signs, and again, I'm not smart enough to call a bubble. Yeah. The bubble signs are being seen in the private market. These are companies that are not even traded publicly yet, and they are already getting multi-billion dollar valuations. Is there also an effect where back then in 2000, even if you didn't necessarily believe that Yahoo would be the next CNBC or whatever, that Yahoo would be the next New York Times, like you were for a couple of years there, you were almost a fool not to participate in investing in tech stocks. I mean, it was just going up and up. And I don't see as much of that, I guess, echo effect today. Or am I wrong? You're, you're closer to it. Well, okay. Here, here, here. I'm going to throw out some, a, a very interesting stat, all right? I talked to the folks over at Renaissance Capital. Now, this is a, this is a company that runs exchange-traded funds, ETFs, that track the IPO market. They went back and did all this research, right? Do you know what the average first day, first day pop, you know, we, we talk about these big one day pops mm-hmm. when, when a company first comes public. Last year in 2014, for all the tech IPOs that came out, the average first day pop was pretty eye popping. It was 25%, meaning on average, a tech stock that went public went up by 25% over its IPO price in just the first day of trading. Now, consider this, back in 1999, near the heights of the bubble, the average first-day stock gain for a tech IPO was almost a double. Yeah. 90% the stock went up on average on just the first day of trading. Now, that is a lot different than it is today. And I don't know if you have the stats on how many went down, but my recollection is none or almost none. It was to the point where if you knew someone who could get you in on an IPO, you wouldn't even question it. Like, you'd be a fool not to do it. Not not even to think about it. Because the numbers that. favored you. That's right. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, at the time, it just seemed like you could buy anything that had a dot com attached to it at the end, yeah. and it was somehow going to go up in stock value. I mean, there was just this idea that everything always went up, and obviously that all went 
terribly wrong yeah. in, in 2000. And now a lot of those dot-coms exist only as spokes puppets. But I want to ask <laughs> you something else. Sure. You know, $5,132 in 2000 adjusted for inflation is 68.73. Yeah. So I don't hear people talking about that. No, that you make a good point. And the here. other thing is, if you literally invested your 5132 if you were the sucker who bought at the actual high in those companies, you wouldn't have 5000 or close to 5000 today. A lot of those companies went bankrupt, and that's an important thing to know too, I think. So uh, one of the big reasons why we talk about this right now is because fundamentally the index today is very different looking and, and in reality than it was back in 1997, 98, 99, and 2000. There are different companies there than there were now. Even the companies who survived are much different appearing, right, in this particular index than they were back in 1999 and 2000. The reason why I say this is because some very, very large companies like the Cisco Systems of the world, the Microsofts, the Intels, they had very, very high valuations back then, and they carried a lot of weight. Some of them still do now, right? But they represent a much larger part of this index, and they don't grow nearly as fast anymore, all right? So what you have to look for when, when people say, hey, you know, can you make an apples-to-apples apples comparison between now and then, yeah. it's almost impossible to do that because you'd have to figure out, well, what is Facebook today like back in 1999? Was it Yahoo? You know, was it Lycos? Or you know, was it something like that? And nobody can make an accurate representation of what Twitter is today and what it would have been back in 1999 or 2000. Right. So that's the apples to apples comparison. The apple to apple comparison in 2000, it was at $19 and today it's $128. I mean, that's Apple's apple been a juggernaut. Apple. <laughs> yeah, Apple's a juggernaut. There's no doubt. You don't become the richest company in the world and, and set records because, you know, you, you, you sat on your hands. I mean, this is obviously a company that's done a lot. I'm not an Apple cheerleader. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I respect what the company does. I respect the management that's there. Here's the thing. Apple, even today, trades at a discount valuation to the market, meaning you don't have to pay as much to claim a dollar's worth of Apple's earnings as you do for just about you know, every other stock in the S&P 500 right now. Right. And I think that's an indication that maybe it's not, well, it's not the bubble that it was in 2000. I'm not saying it's not going to go down. It's just not I, the bubble. I don't have a crystal ball, but yeah. the, I, I want to say, and I want to point out right now that there are definitely differences between now and what it was back in 1999 and 2000. Dominic Chu covers the markets for CNBC. Somehow he took uh, 12 minutes out to talk to us. Thank you so much, Dominic. (laughs) Always a pleasure. The Gist is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. You've been hearing us talk about this week after week because it's on every Sunday at 8, and it's just building in drama. People are loving this show. It's by Andrew Jarecki. It's a six-part examination of Robert Durst. He is the New York City tycoon or the son, the scion of this real estate fortune. He is at the heart of three murders, you could say. This documentary series exposes long-buried information discovered during a seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. Durst cooperated with Jarecki. He met Jarecki when Jarecki made a feature film based on the Durst story called All Good Things that starred Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. You might know the Jarecki name because he's the guy who did Capturing the Freedmans. The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst airs Sundays at 8 only on HBO. 
Sometimes when we touch, the honesty is too much. Let's be honest here for a second. Claims about touch are somewhat overblown. Well, actually, let's put that to the test. Because joining me now is Maria Konnikova. She's written a book about Sherlock Holmes. She has a new one coming out about con men. She writes for The New Yorker. And from time to time, she comes here on The Gist to play Is That Bullshit with us. Hello, Maria. Hi, Mike. So, Maria, let me read this claim to you. Professional cuddlers embrace more clients. The snuggling industry takes off. All right, so this is what one of these sites, there are people who will come and hug you and stuff, and they're not sexual, they claim. Here's this thing. Research shows there are tangible physical and emotional perks to touch. It can increase levels of oxytocin, a bonding hormone produced by the hypothalamus that promotes warm feelings. Touch may lower heart rates and reduce stress, according to academic research. I've heard about academic research. I even went to that college, academic. First of all, like we always do, let's try to figure out what the pro-touch crowd is really trying to claim? What are the claims based on touch? Well, I think that they range from everything from touch feels nice Mm -hmm. to touch will make you sick less often. You know, if you experience lots of cuddling and lots of snuggling with your coworkers, um, then then your common cold Uh rates in your office are going to go down. Yeah, exactly. Though the sexual harassment lawsuits will pile up. And everything in between. Uh Uh-huh. What what do you know about these levels of oxytocin? Is that a real thing? It. It is and it isn't. So let me let's back up a second just to touch because oxytocin we can we can talk for hours okay. because it really is and overblown. Slate is debuting a new podcast, Oxytocin Talk, for Slate Plus members. But yes. anyway, you can, we get it on the ground floor. <laughs> let's go. So what we do know is that touch is an incredibly important sense and that it's one of the senses that we share with a lot of our ancestors, a lot of our primate ancestors that is crucial to social bonding. So Robin Dunbar, who is famous for the Dunbar number, Mm -hmm. which is the number of friends we can have, he originally started studying grooming in monkeys and apes. And he looked at big groups and he looked at how big their brains were and how much time they spent grooming each other and found that there was a correlation. So the larger the brain, the more time was spent grooming and the larger the social group that the monkeys could actually live in. And that's where he initially got his Dunbar number. But then he started studying humans. And now he studies just social bonding. But it's really interesting that it started with this very basic thing, grooming Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. touch, and that that's what really creates kind of bonds between people. Because a few things happen. First, our skin has a ridiculous number of receptors for touch, for different sorts of touch, for different speeds of touch. I mean, it's actually crazy. They're specialized for just one specific type of touch. Secondly, grooming someone or, you know, petting them and kind of picking nits off of their backs, that takes time and you can't be doing anything else. With some people more than others. Exactly, with some people more than others. Um, In fact, there's a touch receptor that's just for hairy people. Oh, really? (laughs) As as, as fascinating as that is. Um, Hairy people. Is there a continuum for that? Like you're officially hairy, you have the touch receptor. I don't know. We'll we'll have to investigate. The hirsute among us might know. (laughs) Um, So so it, it obviously takes time and it shows that you care because you're investing time in the grooming. So those are two separate areas of that. But when you translate it to humans, Uh it means that, yes, when we quote unquote groom each other, um, you know, when I pick the 
the nits out of your hair mm-hmm. that you know that I care, but it also feels good because I'm activating the touch receptors. All my life, that is what the women in my life have told me. When, by nitpicking, it shows that I care. By the way, how do we know that it's the touch and not just the doing something nice for someone else right. part? So that's why I said there are two parts to yeah. this. So we know that part of it is the touch because we do have all of these receptors and we see that touching them in the right way when it when they fire, your brain does react to it. And you do release certain things like oxytocin and something called vasopressin, um, endorphins, things that make you feel good. Endorphins. That's another thing that all mm. these all these kind of mushy claims on internet sites always uh, talk yeah. about. Endorphins. What about endorphins? The well, release of endorphins. <laughs> well, so the thing about that I don't like about oxytocin is it's become known as the love hormone. Yeah. And people say, oh, it's this. And that's simply not true. It can cause bonding, but yeah. it can also cause so many different things. And it certainly doesn't cause love in and of itself. So I think it's been really overblown in the media, but it is a real thing. And it is released and it does make us feel better. And it can create bonds. The first time you see this actually isn't with your coworkers. It's between a mother and a child. Mm-hmm. So when you kind of go to pet your infant's head, it's a a natural gesture, and it actually does activate some of these receptors. What's really interesting is that you'll get different effects depending on how you touch, and as I mentioned, the speed at which you touch. So it matters if you're gently stroking or if you're kind of roughly <laughs> roughly stroking, or if you're just hugging, then you're not really doing anything other than physical contact. Yes. Right. Then you're not actually grooming. Grooming requires you to to stroke and to do something oh, like that. Oh, okay. So that's but it about hugging, the grooming. Grooming kind of dictates a certain kind of touch. Yeah, if you're and that just if you're just hugging, yeah, to... if you're just hugging, you're touching, but yeah. you're not grooming. Right. You're just you're just giving someone a hug, which is also important. It activates a different sort of receptor. Mm-hmm. Um, Have they studied bro hugs versus Christian side hugs? Oh, totally. Yeah. And high fives. You know, yeah. that's um, low fives. Forearm bash. Yeah. 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 Fist bump. Bones. Yeah, yeah knocking bones. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so this is, not only can I buy it, they've done these good double-blind mm-hmm. studies that you always cite, and they really are releasing oxytocin, which is overblown as the love hormone, but it's a hormone and it can be measured. Yep. yep. Good. Um, and there's this neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins, David Linden, um, who just released a, a really interesting book about this called Touch. And he talks about all of the different types of touch and how mm-hmm. they can help us. And some of the claims really at this point are overblown. Like it's not going to, in and of itself, make you less susceptible to the common cold. Um, but touch serves as a proxy. This goes back to what we were talking about for social bonding. So people who are who get more hugs, who are touched more often, who are... Sp- cuddled more often, they tend to be people with closer social connections, more friends. And we know that that has huge effects on on how you feel, how often you get sick, unless your friends are all very sickly, in which case it's probably not a yeah. good thing. And now in this book by Lyndon, where he goes through the science <laughs> behind it, are his claims or his description of these very grandiose claims about touch of the you know, we don't know, maybe this is true, or is he kind of backing the most grandiose of the claims? Is he saying touch can do all? No, he's not saying that. He's very careful. Um, He does say um, that touch is very powerful, and we know that that's true. Um, And he does really help you understand. I mean, I learned about the hairy people touch receptors by reading his book. Um, So so we... I learned about the hairy people. (laughs) 
So he does debunk some of these more grandiose claims, but he does make a claim that touch is incredibly important, pervasive, and that it matters in a lot of ways, some of which we don't even know yet. I mean, one of the um, most famous experiments in psychology that was done, oh, I'm going to mess up the dates, back in the 40s, I want to say 30s or 40s, by Tolman on uh, monkeys. It was such a sad experiment. They took little baby monkeys away from their mothers, and then and they gave them the wire monkeys. And they gave I them know about yep, the wire yep, monkeys. This is and such, then the well, fur monkeys. Exactly. But depriving them of touch is really, really terrible. And we know that with infants, it's the same thing. That a lot of times, when an infant has been deprived of touch, it can be one of the most severe forms of child abuse. You don't have to hit them; you just have to not touch them because they're not going to develop in the same ways. Yeah, you know about the monkeys. Everyone knows about the poor monkeys with the wire mother um, and and the fur mother, and they choose the fur mother over the wire mother with milk because they want that that warmth of touch. Um, so there's something very instinctual about that. Okay, so for our Is This Bullshit, I'm going to quote from a site called The Snuggery. The Snuggery is one of these professional snuggling sites, and its claims are, Research provides us with ample evidence that physical contact with others has a positive effect on our physical and mental health. Is that bullshit? No, that's not bullshit. Engaging in touch reduces the amount of cortisol we produce. That is true. Cortisol is known as a stress hormone, yep. which suppresses the immune system. That is true. So, And then the, finally, I think this really sums up the snuggery's claim, and therefore that will be a proxy for our touch discussion. The research is clear. Humans need touch to thrive. Is that bullshit? No, that's not bullshit. There you go. Maria Konnikova, a touching example of touch. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you so much, Mike. And now the spiel, Rudy, 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 Rudy Giuliani said in a dinner for Governor Scott Walker, it's a horrible thing to say, but Barack Obama does not love America. And then he doubled down. Well, bumbled down. He said, quote, some people thought it was racist. I thought that was a joke since he was brought up by a white mother, a white grandfather, went to white schools. And most of this he learned from white people. And now people are mad at Rudy. I say thank you, Rudy. Thank you for disqualifying yourself as someone we ever have to take seriously again. If Rudy had said this a couple months ago and then turned around and tried to criticize Bill de Blasio for his handling of police matters, we'd all say, yeah, but that's Rudy Giuliani you're talking about. He's like the contiguous 48's Sarah Palin. Why are we mad? He's done a service. Usually public speakers know how to couch their attacks in acceptable language. Normally, they revert to the dog whistle. Like, officially, you say, we honor John Kerry's service, but then subtly, the undertone is coward, yellow belly, surrender monkey. So what Rudy Giuliani needed to say is, look, I do not question his patriotism. He must love his country. It's just odd that he never says so. You say it with a sneer because the full frontal assault leaves your flank exposed. See, Rudy used to know this because, and this is exactly what has gone wrong with Rudy Giuliani, he used to know this because he used to be a New Yorker, but he's not a New Yorker anymore. I don't mean literally, he still has a Manhattan apartment, but he's not spiritually a New Yorker. 
New York City is a civilizing influence. New York forced him to deal with people other than Fox viewers or crowds for whom Barack Obama doesn't love America isn't an obvious point. In New York, Rudy dressed in drag. Since then, he's been a drag. A drag on his party and just on the conscience. After 9-11, Rudy Giuliani enjoyed a lot of celebrity. He had trouble turning that into a candidacy, so he settled for a cocoon of commendation. Speaking bromides to uncritical audiences, playing the part of the general who fought the last war, or actually more accurately suffered through the largest attack in the last war. Rudy Giuliani was truly great in the days after 9-11. I voted for him every time I was able to. For a time, I lived right across the street from him. That was when he was living with the married gay couple that he was bunking with after his marriage broke up. See, he was a New Yorker. I do not question Rudy Giuliani's patriotism. Oh, no. Much worse than that. I question his municipal credentials. He is a traitor to his city. He has defected to Fox News Sylvania, the uncritically thinking precincts of... Republandia, good riddance. I'm sure the taxes are lower, but the bagels, like the thinking, is white bread with a gap at its core. And that's it for today's show. We are going to do our lopstar and our antan twig on Monday. Why? It's the 200th episode. Just producer Andrea Salenzi was no altar boy. It'd be okay if the managing producer of Slate Podcast, Joel Meyer, marked his territory by urinating, defecating, scratching, rubbing, or biting trees. I don't need Michael Moore to tell me about 9-11, but I do need executive producer Andy Bowers to tell me about Slate Podcasts. You can listen to the gist on iTunes when you were there. Click on the review stars. There are up to five of them. Why not use all of them? Slate.com slash just email is the place to go to sign up for our daily email. You do the same thing. You could do the same thing through the app. Yo, sign up for podcast after you've downloaded the app that signing up for podcast. We own that. The just owns podcast on Yo. Do you believe that? We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. So Jimmy Breslin once said about Rudy Giuliani that he's a small man in search of a balcony. But here's the real story. See, I was attending the opera with Giuliani that night, and we thought our seats were in the mezzanine. So we get turned around a little bit. Anyway, we get up to the balcony, not the greatest seats. Giuliani's a little pissed. We sit down. He's behind this really tall guy. Couldn't see Die Valkyrie. He was extremely pissed. Breslin saw the whole thing, took the entire incident out of context, except the part where Rudy goes outside and cold cocks a squeegee guy. That made the late additions. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, Rudy Giuliani says President Obama doesn't love America. Do you love America, listeners? Take our Gab Fest test and find out. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.